A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX-10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Greetings, fellow time travelers. As I always say, it's lovely to have you with me as we travel through space and time. And it's always true. Uh, To help support the making of this podcast series... And to get exclusive content every week, sign up to my Patreon.com site, if you will. It's easy. Go to Patreon.com, search for me by name, pay a bit of cash, monthly or annually. It's cheaper if you sign up for the whole year all at once. But in any event, uh, join us. It'd be great to see you there. Okay, that's the advert over. Now it's time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Your country needs you. Build is the adventure of a lifetime. The call goes out and within eight weeks, three quarters of a million British men and boys have volunteered to fight. For thousands, the first time they see action is on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. This single day symbolises the futility of war for generations to come. 57,470 casualties, 19,240 of them dead, all on the same day, the deadliest day in British military history. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In last week's episode, we travelled with you to the Zagros Basin in 1908 and struck it rich. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul and fellow time travellers. Yes, last week, George Reynolds and his team discovered the world's largest oil field. And as the black gold began to flow, the unbelievable wealth and its byproducts totally transformed the world. This week, it's another moment in time that shifts the world on its axis. The repercussions of this event, I believe, are still being felt today. It's 1916 and the first day of the Battle of the Somme. We're on the battlefield of the Somme, uh, on the Western Front in France, 1st of July 1914. The moment in question is... Well, 7.30 a.m., 7.30 in the morning, which was when the battle began. One of the first books I ever wrote, uh, well, one of the first books I ever got published was a a thing called Not Forgotten, about the war memorials of the First World War and taking names from them. It it, it was a book accompanying a, a Channel 4 television series presented by Ian Hislop from, uh, you know, Have I Got News For You and all of that. I had pitched 
by chance, really, I had pitched a book idea about my my dad's dad and the First World War, and I, I had notionally called it Excavating Grandpa's Head. And it fell under the eye of, of an editor who was looking to commission someone to write the tie-in book for this Ian Hislop television series that Ian Hislop well, presumably didn't want or didn't have the time to write. Uh, and so I, because I had suggested something about the First World War, I had effectively put myself in the right place at the right time. So, well, all of that is is just by by way of saying that I've I've thought about and written about the First World War for a lot of years now, and I've said many times before both of my grandfathers fought in and survived the First World War. My my mum's dad was badly wounded in Gallipoli when he was too young to be there, actually. He lied about his age to get into the army, as so many of them did. And my dad's dad was um, wounded multiple times in France. Uh, well, he was wounded at least twice that we know about, possibly more. Uh, and he was at the Somme, although not on the first day, but that battle ground on remorselessly for months after it began. Uh, but he was there, uh, and they, they both, both wounded, both survived, but have been preoccupied by the First World War ever since. And in any event, the Battle of the Somme would be, I would say, and, and a, is, a, is a moment in the story of the world because the First World War changed everything. Everything that had gone before was altered by the scale of the First World War. The First World War left everything else that went wrong in the 20th century. And for many people, the first day of the Somme what's been suggested to them by, by their vague recollections of what they heard at school. The first day of the Battle of the Somme almost is the First World War. It, it, it crystallises everything that people think about the First World War in terms of the scale of it and the slaughter and the carnage and so on and so on. To get into it, I suppose, maybe a, a gentler run-up to it is that war was declared in August of 1914 and... A couple of months later, something of the order of three quarters of a million British men and boys had volunteered for service. They weren't conscripted. They they turned up at, at recruiting stations and offered their services. Three quarters of a million, more than three quarters of a million men. Unlike the rest of the, the so-called great powers at the time, Germany, France, whatever, uh, Britain didn't have a mass conscripted army in 1914, it had a small professional force, uh, the, the British Expeditionary Force, and uh, the, the Secretary of State for War, Horatio Herbert Kitchener, he of the posters, you know, your country needs you and all that, he had understood from the get-go that the little army was going to be overwhelmed by the scale of what was coming. And so the, the PR campaign went out all around Britain, all around the empire, asking for men to come forward to fight and my goodness it worked because it was a world of before Britain hadn't hadn't been involved in, in a major war really or certainly nothing like the first world war you know for a hundred years you know you have to go back to 1815 and Waterloo and whatever even beginning to touch on the scale so it was a population of Edwardian men and women who had no idea really they had no way to uh, Imagine what was coming in terms of the, the what industrialization had made possible in the context of warfare. And so 
men and boys volunteered without, I suppose some of them would have been able to intuit and imagine their way to thinking that it was going to be bad. But many didn't, and it was just cast as an adventure. And in any event, it, the, the PR campaign called upon men's masculinity and their patriotism. To not volunteer was to be unmanly. You had to be cowardly, you know, white feathers and, and so on and so on. So it was a massive psyop, you would say, to guilt, at the very least, men and boys into coming forward. And of course, because there was no concept of the industrialised slaughter that was that was looming, men and boys came for, thinking they were going to be involved in an adventure. They didn't want to miss out. There was panic in many quarters. They thought the war would be over by Christmas and all of that malarkey. And the the, 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 the main preoccupation was you'd have missed out. It, it, there'd be a great victory. 1915 would dawn and you would be left. You hadn't been taking part in it. And it would be shameful and shaming. So there was this gallop to get to the recruiting stations to sign up. And one of the uh, manifestations of all of that was what became known as PALS battalions. PALS as in friends where groups of men from sporting clubs, football clubs, bowling clubs, rugby clubs, people from the same office, the same shop, the same department store, the same street, or the same family, same community, they wanted to join up together. And the military exploited this urge. They wanted to be beside their pals in this great adventure. And th these aggregations that were formed went down in history as PALS battalions. And it, for a start, it, just about every town and city in the land featured a collective, you know, like the Accrington PALS, the Glasgow PALS, the, you know, every town and city, Edinburgh, Glasgow, London, they all, all these men came together in, in wanting to fight shoulder to shoulder and side by side with the people they knew, their neighbours and their workmates and their friends and their pals from football teams and so on and so on. Famously in Scotland, uh, in Edinburgh actually, one of the football clubs was, is, at Heart of Midlothian, known as Hearts. Where Glasgow's got uh, Celtic and Rangers, Edinburgh's got Hearts and Hibernian. That's the local derby. The two local sides split along similar, slightly different but religious lines. So Heart of Midlothian uh, in 1914, they were doing really, really well as a club. Uh, they were poised to win the league title for the first time since 1897. They'd had a run of eight victories, one after the other. They had beaten the Danish national squad. So Heart of Midlothian, Hearts had beaten the Danish national side. And then a war, war broke out. And uh, although everyone's heard of the, you know, the kind of, you know, Daddy, what did you do in the war? And uh, your country needs you and so on. It was many faceted, the campaign. And a lot of the posters targeted sporting clubs, football and rugby in particular. And so there was like a, a, a famous poster which had a, a wounded soldier standing protectively over the body of a dead comrade, dead on the ground at his feet. And he's looking off into the distance where there's a football stadium full of men watching and players playing. And, it, and the, 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 the line under it is, will they never come? 
You know, we're over here dying, and yet men are still playing and watching games. The Glasgow Herald, which is a, a newspaper in Scotland, has, has been for, you know, a century. The Glasgow Herald famously covered an old firm game. Old firm's what you call the derby matches between Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers. That's the old firm. And the, there was a match in November 1914, and the, the piece was all about asking the question, what, what does it matter what happens to Celtic and Rangers when the greatest of all internationals is being played in Europe? There's this constant push to get, to get them signed up. And into that febrile atmosphere stepped a guy called George McRae. He was a local businessman. He was a pillar of the community, you would say. Uh, he was a bit of a mercurial character, actually. He was the illegitimate son of an Aberdeen servant girl. Uh, he'd left school at 14, uh, so you wouldn't have thought his prospects were great. But he'd risen rapidly through the ranks of business and politics. and He was a, he was a very significant... Uh, everyone knew George McRae in Edinburgh. And he came forward and said that he wanted to um, he wanted permission to raise a battalion for the Royal Scots Regiment. So he wanted to bring together really the better part of a thousand men. The Royal Scots was a big Scottish regiment, and he wanted to add to it and front it and lead it. And he was given permission. And on the 24th of November, 1914, he was at the football ground in Hearts making a, this big speech, you know, calling pa patriotic duty and all of the rest of it. And so it was, and so, they, and so they volunteered. And famously, the whole of the first 11, imagine like today, the whole of the first 11 volunteered, turned their backs on the professional game and signed up, along with five um, from the reserves, and because of that, because this big team, I mean, imagine a, a similarly famous, successful squad of professional footballers at the moment stepping up and doing this. You can imagine what the effect was in Edinburgh and all across Scotland. Everyone else signed up because they wanted to be there. They wanted to be alongside their heroes. And so this became the 16th Battalion of the Royal Scots. And Hibernian football squad signed up and other squads, amateurs and all of the rest of it. And... This is like a cross-section of what Kitchener's army looked like in 1915. It was everybody from all across society, shop workers and labourers, artists and office workers, doctors, lawyers, highest to the lowest. It was right through society. So you got the Accrington pals, the Leeds pals, the Cardiff pals, the Grimsby chums, the Glasgow tram workers, plus all these sporting clubs that all, you know, that all stepped up and the, the army couldn't cope with the numbers. They'd unleashed a flood and you had all these guys getting sent to these hastily assembled training grounds and camps all over the place, no rifles to train with, no kit to wear and it meant that there was no need for conscription in Britain until 1916. So many volunteers, they just didn't. So they didn't have to put out a government demand that you know that everybody over eighteen signs up for service. So these thousands of men and boys, they're you know hastily, inadequately trained, and they're in France basically by the middle of nineteen fifteen. Imagine they walk away from P 
peacetime and they walk away from their lives, their, their streets, their, their offices, their shops, and they're in France, all excited. God love them. Middle of 1915. And tragedy of tragedies, for many of them, their first action, first time they stepped forward with a rifle in their hands in anger was the first day of the Battle of the Somme on the 1st of July. They'd seen nothing of the war. They'd never fought. And all these thousands were suddenly there. And, you know, as I say, the Battle of the Somme ground on like a meat grinder until the November of 1916. But that first day, 1st of July, that's the one. That's the, when people think about the First World War and they hear the whistling of the shells and the, the machine gun fire and the barbed wire and the no man's land and the mud, the trenches and the men, it's the first day of the Battle of the Somme that they're consciously or unconsciously thinking about. In the Times and the Telegraph newspapers, I've mentioned the Glasgow Herald already, but in the Times and the Telegraph, you know the in memoriam sections? I don't even know if they're still there. You know, where people put in messages of remembrance of loved ones in memoriam. And f- for the longest time, maybe it still happens, uh, every year it, on the anniversary of the Psalm, there was a piece that would go in that read 9th and 10th Battalions, King's own light infantry to the undying memory of the officers and men of the above battalions who fell in the attack on Free Corps at the Somme on July the 1st, 1916. Gentlemen, when the barrage lifts. And that went in year after year after year after year, in memoriam, remembering what, what happened to just that pocket of, of men on that day. There was this massive bombardment, a million and a half shells or something were were dropped on the German lines in advance of of the battle. So minute after minute, hour after hour, for days, weeks on end, they just bombarded a million and a half shells. These things are the size of people just dropping on the German lines. And the the tactic was, or the intention was that all the German defences would be obliterated, so the barbed wire would be would be blasted away and it would just be a level playing field, so to speak. And the intention was that the, 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 all the soldiers would just step up out of the trenches, like the end of Blackadder, <laughs> they would just step up from the trenches and walk. The order was initially that they would walk, no running, no need, because the, 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 all the Germans would be dead, don't worry about it. So there was this massive bombardment. But in the event, it just made everything worse. It turned the ground into mud and the barbed wire was just, it didn't get torn at all. It just got made into even more of a hellish jumble, even more of an obstacle. And crucially, the German soldiers, they had, they, they were on the ground first and they had, they had underground bunkers, reinforced concrete structures deep underground and they just weathered it. No doubt it was hell on earth as they endured the bombardment, but they were safe. And as soon as the barrage stopped, and the barrage stopped, lifted at 7.30 a.m. on the 1st of July. And as the British soldiers in their serried ranks stepped out of their trenches, out of cover, and began walking across no man's land, the German soldiers just came up from their bunkers and set up their machine guns, untouched and opened fire. And there's all sorts of accounts of 
German soldiers just in like disbelief, machine gunners just watching, firing towards these lines, many many deep of men just walking towards them, and they were just mowing them down. Machine gun fire, you know, the, the machine guns just you know bathed in oil to keep them cool and all the rest of it. The first of July was the it was the deadliest day in British military history. 57,470 casualties by the end, 19,240 of whom were dead. So nearly 20,000 dead on the day. So British Army never saw another day like it, before or since. Before the Somme, all part of this sort of hasty sort of organisation of all, every soldier had a dog tag, his details on it, date of birth, his name and whatever. And... When you're killed, they take your dog tag away because they need to stop your pay because the British Army doesn't pay dead soldiers. So it's a priority to know who's dead, that you don't have to pay anymore. So the dog tags would be taken away and go back to the to the bureaucrats for that bit of admin. And because of the carnage of the Somme that day and countless dreadful days thereafter, they were taking dog tags off of people and the burial parties couldn't keep up with burying the dead. So that by the time they came to these mountains of dead, uh, decomposition and the rest meant that they didn't know who they were. They, they knew who was dead. They knew, they knew who had presented for active service that day and they knew they were dead, but they couldn't put names to the bodies anymore. They were just butchered meat. I, I did tell even... I mean, so many of the, the the men were just blown to bits or cut to pieces by machine gun fire. There was no way to identify them. So the army had this massive, shameful, bureaucratic problem of knowing that all these thousands of men were dead, but they couldn't put names to bodies. So they couldn't bury them with their names. And this was what led to the myth-making of the, of the missing of the psalm. You know, there's, a, there's an enormous memorial at Tietval, which is like a great big cathedral without walls. It's this huge vaulted space, and it's lined with names of met thousands, all the thousands that were known to have vanished there, in as much as they turned up and then ended up dead, but no one knew where. And around the top of it, it says the missing of the Somme, as though there's something, as though they just turned up and disappeared, just ah, to, you know, spirited away to heaven. But it was a way of coping with the reality, which was that they, they, they couldn't give people their names. If you go to Teepval and many of the cemeteries of the First World War, there's all these Portland stone gravestones that just say, a soldier of the Great War, or known unto God. And, and it was these elegiac, romanticised ways of dealing with the reality, which was mountains of butchered meat, that had once been men that just had to be put under the ground. When you go to places like Teepval and Tyne Cot and you see all these serried ranks of Portland stone, this illusion of order, each man in his place, that was manicured into existence after the war. The reality was just mass graves, bodies jumbled in, and then subsequent to that, these serried ranks of stones were put in place. You know, as though there's a grave with a man in it. And the reality is it became like that later as they were finding individuals and putting them in individual graves. But 
these horrendous charnel houses were, were were created to cope with the numbers that they just got to do got to get these guys out of sight. And so, well, long story short, only after the Somme did we get to where it's been ever since, where soldiers have two dog tags. That's why you have two, so that if and when you're killed, one's taken off so they can stop your pay, and the other stays with your dead body so that they can hopefully put you into a grave with a gravestone and your name on it. Into that butcher's yard had marched the PALS battalions, and... As it played out, the, the high command realised they couldn't do this. When whole streets joined up together, or whole office blocks, or whole shops, or football clubs, they scattered them through the through the battalions, through the regiments, so that there would never be these clusters of loss. Because after the first day of the Battle of Somme, whole streets got telegrams on the same morning, saying, everyone's dead. All the dads, all the brothers, all the sons... Whole, whole things were just wiped out together at the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And so that was that was stopped. So military command learned a, a dreadful, dreadful lesson there. In Great War and, and, and Modern Memory, which is a fantastic book about the First World War, by an American war veteran and writer called Paul Fussell, and he gave the background to that quote that I mentioned, that in memoriam in the Times and the Telegraph. And it turns out that it was back in... The, the 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 HQs were all behind the lines, back 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 away from the shell fire. And in this particular one, someone had suggested that there should be a toast to the commanding officer. You know, it's seven o'clock in the morning, and the word is that the CEO was not a popular man, to put it mildly. So people were struggling for what to be said, and somebody got pushed forward and apparently said, you know, thinking about what he could say, without saying what he really thought, he said, gentlemen, when the barrage lifts, you know, they knew that the shelling was about to stop and the men were about to go forward and that was as much as they could bring themselves to say. And it, it all plays into that sense that you have of the First World War, which is of it being too big to contemplate. All the numbers are too vast. You can't make it real. I mean, just as a for instance, by the end of 1914, by the autumn and winter of 1914, France, our ally, was a million casualties down. Dead or never going to fight again. A million men with four years of the war still to go. Imagine today. Imagine that happening today. When it came to Versailles at the end of the war, with the peace treaty, there were hushed conversations in that context where people wondered if France still existed. France was so hurt, like two million casualties more. And the, the, the people said, is France even still there? And, you know, a decision was taken that, well, we're going to have to stand something up and call it France, because notionally we've won the war. But France was bled white by the war. And you just can't, in the modern concept of warfare, we just, you know, it's just unthinkable. Everything about it's unthinkable. The Accrington Pals, that was another Pals battalion from Accrington. At 7.30am on the 1st of July, there were 720 of them from the town. 
and they were part of the song was huge. It was a great line of every, all all these pockets of men with their own objectives on the day. And the, the Accrington pals were part of an attack towards a, a, a town called Ser. So 7.30 comes, the barrage lifts and out they go. And within half an hour, 584 of 720 were dead, wounded or missing, never to be seen again. 584 out of 720. And the you know, McRae's battalion of the Royal Scots from Heart of Midlothian, it was the same for them. All these guys, I've read about all of them. There was, one of them was a was um, a Paddy Crossan. Uh, he was a fullback uh, for Heart of Midlothian, and he, he was quite a character. And apparently, he used to dis- he would tell anyone who was listening that he was the handsomest man in the world. The, the, his mates said of Paddy Crossan that he he could pass a ball, but he could never pass a mirror. <laughs> Paddy Crossan. And he was there, and 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 the rest of them: uh, Henry Watty, Ernie Ellis, Duncan Curry, a whole a whole list of 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 players that were legend in their own lifetimes. And the the McRae's battalion, the the Heart of Midlothian Football Club, they were with the 16th Battalion of the Royal Scots, and they they were folded into a larger entity, which was the 34th Division at Contalmaison. And out they stepped, 7:30, out they went. And well, Paddy Crossan, handsomest man in the world, he was wounded by a shell blast, uh, and his lungs were then subsequently wrecked by poison gas. But he survived. He lived out the war, and uh, he opened a pub on Rose Street in Edinburgh. And it was there. It had his. It was his. It had his name on it. It was the Paddy Crossan. It was there with his name on it right up until I can remember. I don't think it's still there now, but he died. He died long before. Paddy Crossan died in 1933 at the age of 39. Because of wounds, because of damage done. And then Private Henry Watty, he was a, a, an inside forward. There's a position that I don't think even exists anymore in the football world. Uh, but he was an inside forward. He was a huge talent, apparently. And he was seen falling in the first minutes after 7.30. His body was never found. And he was listed among the missing forever. He was 23. Ernie Ellis, another footballer from Hearts. He was a married man, married to Isabel. Uh, He had a daughter that he didn't live to see. A daughter conceived while he was still at home, but he never lived to see her. Uh, He was buried, but his grave was lost in the subsequent chaos. He was 30. Duncan Curry was another name, another legend. He was dead at 24. By the end of the war, seven of the first eleven were dead. Seven. Imagine, imagine a squad now. Whatever, Manchester United, Barcelona. Imagine something like that and put it in the modern context. And the, the, July the first just tore the heart out of the sixteenth McRae's battalion, as they called it. Twenty-one officers. And nearly 800 men started the day, right? 21 officers and nearly 800 at 7.30 a.m. on the 1st of July. And by the end of the day, 12 officers and over 600 men were dead. Think of that. 21 officers and nearly 800 men start the day, step out at 7.30. And by the end of the day, 12 officers and more than 600 of them are dead. 
and historians have written about it ever since. It's been called Edinburgh's blackest day since the Battle of Flodden in 1513, when King James IV died at the front of the battle. There was all sorts of criticism levelled at Macrae. Some people said that he kept himself out of danger, that he was behind the lines when the fighting started. That was also um, strenuously denied by others close to him. In any event, Macrae himself survived the war, but his health was ruined, and he died in 1928 at the age of 67. But his name is still known amongst people of a certain age in Edinburgh. You know, so there we go, first day, Battle of the Somme, a moment in time, 7.30am on July the 1st. And you look at it now and you think, they knew... At some level, Kitchener and the rest of them knew what would happen when they appealed to men's patriotism, sense of honour, loyalty to one another, loyalty to friends, their just their 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 manliness. They knew what would happen, that all these men and boys would, would volunteer. And at some level, Kitchener and, and the rest they knew, or, or they would have had a good hunch that disaster was coming. Maxim machine guns firing 666 rounds a minute, and shells, and poison gas, and barbed wire, and all the rest of it. They knew at some level what was coming, and they played on men and boys, knowing that they would come forward in these numbers and would be harvested like grass. And then... A, as I've suggested or implied, you think, well, we would never let something like that happen again. But there's always a part of me that thinks, well, maybe they would. Throughout history, single individuals have managed to change the narrative for millions or even billions of people. One such person working as a lawyer in Russia, is jailed for opposition to the government. After exile in Siberia, he flees to Europe. But as the First World War shatters Russia with millions dead and the economy in tatters, his call for peace, land and bread rings out. And he and the Bolsheviks transform their country and the world forever. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address, nice and simple for these complicated times. It's just neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for merchandise connected to this series of podcasts. There's t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and all the rest. My Instagram account with daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. 
Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.